0: Okay, so Rayim Tov, we uh, begin a new series, and we are going to be studying Megillas Esther. Last year we studied Megillas Esther with the commentary of the Malbim, and this year we're going to be learning the Megillah with the commentary of the Rama, Rav Moshe Isserlis who was uh, famously, his acronym is Ramah Rav Moshe uh, of Ben Israel Israelis, who was a very eminent Polish Ashkenazi rabbi who lived in the 1500s. Unfortunately, he did not live very long. He only lived 42 years. He's most famously known as writing his commentary and halacha on the base Yosef, and also writing um additions glosses to the Shulchan Aruch to help us understand halacha for Ashkenazim. And the story behind this, his commentary on the Book of Esther, is as follows. And he writes this in his introduction. He said he was forced to leave Krakow where he was born for the city of Shidlo because there was an outbreak of cholera and he writes quote and i was among the exiles from our city in the year 1556 that made him 26 years old because of the plague we dwelt in the land that was not ours in the city of Shidlo a place without fig trees and vines were unable to observe Purim with feasting and joy to remove sorrow and mourning. So that's the time when he wrote this commentary. The title of his commentary is called Mechir Yayin, and it comes from the book of Isaiah, chapter 55, verse 1, where it says, Everyone who is thirsty, come to the waters, and he who has no money, come, buy, and eat. Come and... Mechir Yayin, buy wine and milk without money and without price. So that's the name of the commentary to buy the wine. And yeah, obviously the poverty was tremendous. So the Ramo was unable to send his father the traditional Mishloach Manos for Purim. Instead, he wrote this commentary, the safer for his father instead and we found others that have done the same thing now obviously you do not fulfill the mitzvah of Mishloch Monas by writing a book and giving it to people but it was a symbolic so to speak gesture in other words he's saying listen I don't have the money to send food to you Abba but I'm going to send you spiritual food and uh, he wasn't the only one to do this And uh, so this uh, book is what we'd call a philosophical and very much an allegorical and Kabbalistic commentary on the book of Esther. And um, although he is mostly known for his works, on, again, in the halacha, but uh, this is one of the uh, lesser known uh, things that he did. And eventually he established a yeshiva in Krakow and he had some amazing students. Um, and the, this little um, work was first printed in 1558, two years later, and it's gone through many other printings. I'm still looking to find a more modern printing that has lots of commentary. So we're going to go with what we have. Okay, so what we're going to do is just go pasuk by pasuk and add the commentary. Some of the commentary is is quite mystical, and I don't want to get bogged down in that. And we're not going to necessarily explain every single detail because we only have three weeks until Purim, and I want to finish the entire commentary. But uh, the the most important thing is to realize that in this safer he is going to be using allegory to explain the life of the Jewish soul. And we will see that he will divide this up into three parts. So, in other words, he is not intending to say this is a commentary of what actually happened in the Megillah. There are 70 faces to the Torah. So there's obviously the actual story that happened. And then there's ways of understanding it on multiple levels. So he's selecting one level, which is no different than, for example, what the Vilna Gaon did with Sefer Yonah. He wrote a commentary on Yonah, and we went through that many years ago, in which he describes that it's uh, there's the story of Yonah, and then there's the allegory of the, the the descent of the soul into the world. And where there the focus is that man has to do his mission in the world. And we're all like a Yona that has to do our mission. If we don't do the mission, what happens to us? So there he focuses that an allegory as the soul in terms of doing a mission. Here the Ramah is going to use the same tact. So, and, he's, and he belabors this in his introduction. He's saying, don't think I'm trying to tell you this is the exact meaning of what happened. He's saying, what's ha- there's plenty of commentaries. The Gemara even tell you what really happened and what the message is. But there's always another level, another layer. And therefore, the point being that we're learning this commentary. So um, as opposed, for example, we learned the Malbim last year and that was to show the great hashkacha Pratis of God's divine intervention. And that was the focus of the Malbim. This year, the focus of the Mechir Yayan is to see ourselves in the Megillah, to see ourselves, each and every Jewish soul, body and soul that is in this world, we to see ourselves in the Megillah, and there are three general stages of life, and to see ourselves in those stages, and to know what is the optimal way for us to learn our lives. So obviously, there is a Musar content to this Sefer. And as we start the beginning, uh, and as I'm just starting to go into this, we can kind of entitle this first section, is that how the youth waste their talents that can be used for good, and unfortunately we use it to fulfill our lusts instead. And that's what he's going to show us. So let's I'll read the first pasuk. I'll translate it and then give you the commentary that he says. Vayehi bimei Achashverosh, and it was in the days of Achashverosh. Who Achashverosh? He is Achashverosh hamolech, who rules Hodu via Kush, from the cities of Hodu until Kush. Sheva va'Estri Medina, hundred and twenty-seven provinces, and that is certainly the accurate shot explains the Ramon over here. He says that this and the first Pasuk, he's saying, is a general overview of the human being. Pasuk Aleph is a general overview of the human being. And therefore, it's giving us a hint from the beginning of life to the end of life. So first, it starts with the word Vayahi. And the rabbis tell us whenever it says Vayahi, it generally means days of suffering. And certainly this is no different. In the literal story, it was a day of suffering. Where was celebrating the lack of the return of the Jews to the Beis Hamikdash. And all the troubles that happened from that. But on an allegorical level, we're talking about the birth of a child. A child comes into the world we also say vayahi, which literally in English means whoa, whoa, that there's something not good happening. So what is that? Well, the Gemara in the first chapter of Erevin said there was a whole discussion between Hillel and Shammai. Was it pleasant for mankind to be created or not? They battled, was it, better than, was it a good thing that we were created? Was it pleasant for man? Was it not pleasant? Gomorrah concludes, after two and a half years, it is not pleasant for man to be created. And now that he is, he should really uh, introspect his actions. So what does this mean on a simple level? That man is, the soul is up in Shemaim. it's very close to Hashem. That's Noah, that's very pleasant for it. It's very close to Hashem. All of a sudden, Hashem sends it down into the world. And being down into the world, it's not such a pleasant experience because there's all kinds of false realities. Man makes many mistakes, uh, causes a lot of suffering in his life. There's Yetzirah, there's all kinds of things. Now, seriously, the Gomorrah does not say many people misinterpret that Pasek and think, and say, was it better for man to be created or not? Obviously, if God decided man has to be created, it, it's it's the best thing. But the wording of the word is, is it no achlo? Is it pleasant for man to be created? Well, if you really understand the schema of life, it could be a very pleasant experience. But statistically, most people lack that awareness and it becomes unpleasant. And now that you're feeling it's unpleasant, So then you really have to introspect in your ways to see where the pleasantness is. But in general, what that means is, and it's very interesting, you know, why is it that the first thing a baby does when it comes into the world is it cries? Well, obviously the baby knows something more than everybody else knows. The baby is sitting in, Gemara says the baby's inside the womb and he's enjoying that time so much because Hashem is teaching him all the Torah that he needs to know and now he's leaving that very secure and protective place and now he's going into the world which is the world of lies and, 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 and deceit and where Hashem's real, uh, reality is not clear. So therefore, man's coming into the world is vi, it is woe, it is a lotion of tsar, And of course, there is much pain in this world. And the trick in life is how do we negotiate that? So that's the first line. Okay, now who is the character in our story? Is Achashverosh. And we're going to see, we have Achashverosh and Vashti, and we'll discuss what they represent. But before we can do that, we have to explain a very fundamental idea in Jewish philosophy. And these are the terms of Chomer and Tsura. Chomer and Tsura. Simplistically, Chomer means raw material, and Tsura is what gives the Chomer its meaning and purpose. For example, we could say the body is the Chomer, is the raw material, and the soul is the Tsura. It shapes and gives it purpose. Or we could say, for example, wood is a chomer, it's raw material, and when it's fashioned into a table, that gives the chomer a tzura, a shape of a productive table. <coughs> the Maral discusses this at great length, and he says that all of creation is built with two complementary systems, that of tzura and chomer, and he calls it a little bit more sophisticated. He says tsura from the word tsyer is to paint and to to make a portrait. So, what are you doing? Tsura is what we call the influential force, providing a general direction and a general outline or form. Homer is the force that takes this influence and uses it to give form to matter and to put things in the proper place and composition. So, for example, it says, In the beginning, Hashem created the heavens and the earth. So that means that we start off with a pair of complementary forces. Shemaim really represents the spiritual. That's the influential. And the earth And that's the tzura. And it provides a general form and direction, such as, what do we have in the heavens? It gives rain. It gives rain. And it envelops all of creation. Eretz, the earth, is the receiver of the influence. In other words, the heavens, what do the heavens do? It brings warmth. It brings sunlight. It brings photosynthesis. It brings water, rain, all there. And what happens? It it, it influences the chomer, the earth. That what comes from that vegetation, crops, minerals. So you see, Hashem etched into creation these supplementary powers of tzura and chomer, and therefore we have the same idea of there being zohar and nikaiva, male and female complementary forces. The Zohar, the male, represents the tsura, which is the influential force that priya- provides a general form and direction, while the Nekeva, the female, receives that influence and uses it to provide some kind of substance through birth, through ch- raising children, providing the family with its needs. So the woman takes the influence of the man and brings it into practice and fruition. Not that the man is better than the woman, not that the woman is better than the man. That's the way all of creation exists. We're not going to say the heavens are better than the earth, but they are worked together. And therefore every aspect in the entire world, there's a male and female aspect an aspect of the influencer and the influencee. And it's not such an easy thing to allow oneself to be influenced. It takes a great talent as well. So we're not minimizing either one of the two, but that's just the natural way of how things go. So with this introduction, we can appreciate what the Mechir Yayin is going to tell us now. And he says that the story is going to tell us about Achashverosh, who's going to be the male component of Tzura, and Vashti is the Nekeva, the female aspect of Tzura. But as we shall see, the there can be a uh, as as they use in the analogies, you could have a woman who's an asheschayil. And that means a receiver who receives for the best, uh, 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 to develop the best things possible. And you can have a woman who is uh, not a proper woman and she could take all that and shape it in a very terrible way. So, and that's where the realm of free will choice comes in over here, as we shall see. And we will see that there's different quote-unquote wives that you can have. There's the Vashti wife and then we'll see the Esther wife. And we'll see this is all within the human being himself, the soul and the body. Even, even within the human being, we have such a thing. And certainly with marriage, a husband and a wife, where together they create one beautiful reality. So now, so we got Achashverosh. So we say, Vayehi, Vayehi, whoa, be may Achashverosh. We're talking about the beginning of birth. Achashverosh is the overall term for the human being. Body and soul, the whole package. Why is he called, and he's called Achashverosh, because he's the tzura. He is the force that shapes and molds and influences. And therefore, at the end of the day, it all relates back to that initial influential force. And it's called Achashverosh. As the Gemara says, Achashverosh is a contraction of two words. Ach, Ach, and verosh Ach means brother, verosh, and head. The shit in the middle, he says, you know, we can ignore it. I don't want to get into the grammar part. But and that's really what the Gemara says. Gemara Megillah says that Achashverosh was Ochiv Shel Rosh, was the brother of the head. There it's make a reference that Achashverosh was, so to speak, a brother of Nebuchadnezzar, even though they weren't actually biological brothers. But some say a, a brother means similar attitudes. So Nebuchadnezzar destroyed the temple, believed he was God, and would not allow the temple initially to be rebuilt. He thought he was like God. But that's what the Gomorrah is talking about. But here we're talking about the idea of an ach and a rosh, uh, meaning as follows. When the Torah uses the word ach, which simply means brother, or achos is a sister, it's a borrowed term. And what does it mean? If you look in the biblical terminology, The word ach means something that is able to connect with something else. As we'll find with the building of the uh, curtains in the Mishkan, it uses an expression of one uh, curtain is connected to another. They say, each woman to her sister. Now I'm talking about curtains over here. So what does it mean? So we have the word ach and achos means something that can be connected with something else. And therefore we call the tzura, the shaper, the ach, the brother. Why? Because it's capable of connecting with what? The homer, the mass, which is the sister, so to speak. And they're capable of being together with each other. So there's like what we'd call a, 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 what's the word? a filial relationship. Just like brother and sister, they're connected. So you have the body and soul are like a brother and sister, so to speak, where they're connected, and they can combine to be one thing. Now obviously, which one's going to be called the Rosh, the head? The head is where the beginning is. It's going to be with the Ach, the brother, the Tzura, the shaper, because that starts the process and how it involves and affects the Chomer. So therefore, we see now we're dealing with the human being, Vayehi, Whoa, there's going to be a human being. Bimei rosh. okay? Now we understand who rosh is. He's the part of the human being, that's the tzura, that can connect and bond with the quote-unquote Vashti, which is the chomer, uh, the form. And who Achashverosh, rosh has hamolech, who reigns. Mehodu v'adkush. So what does it mean he reigns? So we're talking about that, well, what was Achashverosh able to do? Was Achashverosh a descendant of royal blood? No. He had no royal blood in him. He was a commoner. But through his own um, um, abilities, we'll say, whether they're positive or negative, we're not going to get into right now, he was able to move his way up and become the king. So the rabbis say that he was Hamolech Meatzmo. He ruled from himself. It wasn't an inheritance. He didn't have royal blood. And now we have a deeper understanding that remember Achashvar is the story of each and every one of us. And therefore, the truth is every human being can rule from himself. And the choice from him is to be like the angels above. And although we don't come from that kind of royal blood. In other words, what would we call analogous to royal blood is the angels. The angels, they're very holy. A regular human being, although we'll see has a neshama, a very holy soul, but as the physical human being, we ain't no king for anything. We know that when uh, Moshe Rabbeinu went up to get the Torah, what was the first criticism the angels had? To even Moshe, who is the greatest, he says, what's a physical human being doing up here to get the Torah? The human being is not of royal, so to speak, blood. He's just a physical person, right? And But still, he is able, through his own free will choice, to rule over the world. Now, the question is, how is he going to rule? Is he going to rule by subjugating himself to Hashem And getting the instructions from Shem how to rule the world, which is a good thing. Or is he going to decide on his own how he wants to rule the world? And that's not a good thing. Okay, and that's why the Gemara says on the words Hamolech that Ahasuerus ruled, there's a Machlokas. Rav says he ruled by himself. Some say that that's a positive, nice thing to say, and some say it's a negative. Why do some say it's positive? Because there was nobody as talented as him to be the king. That's one understanding. The negative is really he was not worthy to be the king, but he had a lot of money, a lot of corruption, and he used the money and his corruption and his skullduggery to become the king. So again, when you have such, now here's a beautiful understanding. So what was he? Was he a good guy or a bad guy? So you have to understand that the rabbis, when they're having this debate, they're not talking about the Ahashverosh, we're talking about the human being. They're talking about the, the symbolism of Ahashverosh. See, that's what you have to understand the Gomorrah. So therefore, there's a, there's a lot of Ahashverosh. Each and every one of us on planet Earth is an Ahashverosh. So now the question is, is he a king? He ruled by himself, but is it for praise or is it not for praise? Was he using his talents in the best way possible or not? And that really is each and every one of us. There's an Achashverosh human being who uh, makes himself king and he decides to be subservient to Hashem and do everything Hashem and to rule the world based on what Hashem tells him how to rule the world. Or he can say, I'm just going to rule on my own. And whatever I want, I'm going to do these things on my own. So is what is it? The answer is both. You have free will choice. You can be an achashverosh who's hamolech. You're going to rule. The question is, how are you going to rule? Is it going to be in a good way or is it in a bad way? And then it says, "May hodu veatkush," from hodu until kush. What is that? What's the symbolism? So the symbolism is he rules from the day he's born until the day he dies. Hodu is symbolic of the day he's born. Kush is symbolic of the day he dies. Why? Because Hodu comes from the word praise and beauty and glory. And what happens to a little baby? Everybody says, oh, the baby's so cute. Anybody see a little baby and say, that's an ugly baby? No, it's a beautiful baby. Every baby's beautiful. Oh, he has a chey he has a this and a that. Everyone praises, it's an amazing baby. Right? And that's the one hand. On the other hand, kush is symbolic of the day of death. Because kush, if you remember it says that Miriam spoke about Moshe's wife. She was called the Isha kushis. What does kushis mean? So there's a lot of explanations. Simple, uh, very simple. It's black. It doesn't mean to say that black people are not beautiful. But it means to say the idea of kush is that it's someone that is, so to speak, not involved with the world. And it's sort of dark. Like when there's darkness, you don't know what's going on over there. And what really was being said over there, that Moshe had a wife who was a kushis, meaning to say he wasn't involved with his wife anymore. He was so holy, so spiritual, he no longer acted like a physical person, wasn't intimate with his wife anymore, because God could speak to him at any time. But the point being that it's it, it's it's not being attended to. So we say someone's a kush. It means darkness, meaning to say you don't see it. You're not involved with it, and therefore we have a very interesting understanding of the, that. A person, you are a king. How long are you a king? You are hamolech, and you have to decide. You are the one who decides. Do you want to be a good person? Do you want to be a bad person? You will rule. Do you want to rule by? subjugating yourself to Hashem's laws and are ruling based on Torah law? Or do you decide on your own? I want to rule on my own and be my own person and decide what I want and you can make very bad choices. So therefore, we rule mehodu ve'at kush. We rule from the beginning of our lives to the end of our lives. And very interesting, the Gemara says, a where were hodu and kush? So the Gomorrah has a machlokas. One rabbi says he ruled that Hodu was sofa olam and kush was sofa He ruled from one end of the world to another. Another one says, no, they were really right next to each other. Again, how do you understand the machlokas? He ruled from one end of the world to another. That's how far. Or no, really, Hodu and kush were right next to each other. What does that mean? So the explanation is like this. And I don't want to get into all the technical difficulties because it really should have said from the beginning of the world to the end of the world. Why say from one end of the world? You don't start with an end. You start with the beginning. Why does it say he ruled from the beginning of the world to the end of the world? Why well, does it say end of the world? Or beginning of the world to the beginning of another world. But why, you don't start with an ending. So he explains beautifully. He says like this. He says, when a person is born, it is the end of a world. Which world has it ended? The ending of the world of living inside the mother's uterus. Living inside the mother. That, when he is born, that's the end of one world. David Amelech talks about five borchinafshis, five different stages of his life, five different worlds he lived in. One was in the mother's womb. One as he comes out into the world. So, Misofa Olam, he rules from the end of one world, when, when he's born, he's finished with one world, until Sofa Olam, till he leaves this world. The other rabbi says, Well, really, the two of them were together. What does that mean? Because we know life is considered fleeting. And how does it fleet? Fleets like a bird who flies. We look back, and before we know it, 70, 80 years have passed. Where did that go? So the beginning, you think about it, the beginning of my life, 65 years ago, the end of my life, who knows, maybe 80, another 10, 15, 20 years, whatever it's going to be, whatever your life is, the beginning of the end, at the end of the day, they're not far from each other. Notice a hint to that. I'm not saying it's a good proof, but when you look at um, the, um, uh, the headstones at the cemetery, it talks about the person's life. What does it say? Let's say 1945 and a little line, 2010. Now, what is the person's entire life? That little hyphen. That little hyphen. 1945 hyphen, 2010. 65 years, what is it? It's one little hyphen. That's life. Now, I don't know if that's what they intended. But that's clearly what the Gemara is saying. The Gemara is saying that a person has that life. The life is from one end of the world to the other. You've ended one existence, you go to another existence. Yet, it's very fast. It's like they're next to each other. And the Pesach concludes and says, Sheva ve'estrim Umeya Medina. 127 provinces. We know the Gemara says, Why did Esther have the merit to be a queen over 127 provinces? Because Sarah lived 127 years. What does that mean? The simple meaning is in the merit of Sarah living every moment perfectly of 127 years, her ancestor, her descendant ruled over 127 provinces. Very interesting. If you look at the order, it says Sheva 7, the Esrim and 20, Umea and 100. What does it say by Sarah? Sarah lived. What does it say? Sarah lived 100 years, 20 years, and 7. The reverse. Isn't that fascinating? Talk about Sarah, says 100, and 20, and 7. By Achishver says 7, 20, and 100. Why are they reversed? And he says a beautiful idea. We know what Chazal say about uh, uh, Sarah. 100 was what? Like 20 regarding sin. When she was 100, she was sinless, like someone before 20 is not considered a done sin. 20 like 7. What does that mean? She had the beauty, the innocence of a 7-year-old. Even at 20, when she's the height of her uh, sexual drive, so to speak, she still had the innocence of a 7-year-old. That was the virtues of Sarah, because she was a tzaddikas. But most people, it's the opposite. It's the 7-year-old is like the 20-year-old, and the 20-year-old is like the 100-year-old. Meaning people... Children, and now, you see how so relevant it to is today. Children at seven are supposed to be so innocent. And what are they doing now, the children? They teach them all about sex and all these things. And they're taking away their innocence. You have cell phones, all these things. And now the seven-year-old is like a 20-year-old and doesn't have that innocence and has all those ideas of sensuality. And the 20-year-old is like the 100-year-old who's, who's full of sin and as if they're not in the world anymore. So, the human being going through the seven and, and hundred, there's tremendous um, uh, um, um, challenges that they have that they could turn into not being such great people. And they call it Medina. Medina, although it means a province, but it can also mean from Medinos things we do in, com- in, in commercializing in countries, which means collecting money. Most people are interested in collecting money, and they're not looking for their spiritual growth at the end. Also, Medina can be from the word "reeve" and Madon, which means conflict. So really, it comes out that the 127 years are Medina. It's Medina meaning we worry about our finances, we worry about our socioeconomic status, we're fighting, we're struggling. And at the end of the time, it's every year. Every year has its own unique struggle because we know the Yitzhahara changes every day and every day tries to get stronger. So this first Pusuk has encapsulated the entire human being. From beginning to end, that's the snapshot. Starting from Pesach Bays until the end of the first chapter, we're now going to describe the youth of the human being. And again, the overall idea of the youth of the human being is that, as we know, that that the, that all the youth, youthfulness is wasted on the youth. And all the talents we have are wasted. And that will be discussed tomorrow in Mirza Hashem. Okay.